This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is a bonus episode of The Book Show. A few weeks ago, we hosted the big weekend of books on RN, a whole weekend of books and author interviews. And for me, one of the standout interviews was with Hannah Gadsby, the Australian comedy superstar. You've probably seen her incredible comedy special, Nanette. And Hannah spoke to the ABC's Mon Shafter, and she was so forthright about love and comedy and her quest to understand her own biology. It was so good, and I really want you to hear it. So here it is, the conversation between Mon Shafter and Hannah Gadsby for The Big Weekend of Books. You started writing your memoir, Ten Steps to Nanette, before you'd even written Nanette, the show. What journey did you initially plan to take readers on? Yeah, it wasn't going to be called Ten Steps to <laughs> Nanette. Um, that, <laughs> that would have been freakish. Uh, it was uh, just going to be a collection of essays on um, accidents and illnesses that have visited me throughout my life, you know, a sort of had quite the collection and I that was the book I'd pitched and that was the book that I had a book deal for. But through the course of trying to write that, I found that I couldn't, you know, make sense of my life. So I'd either just not write the book or not write the book. Right. I mean, you seem to, I mean, as we all do over time, you seem to have learned a lot about yourself in the past decade or, you know. So with your autism diagnosis in 2016, like how much of a revelation was that for you? Uh, the, the process was a revelation. Uh, once you get the diagnosis, uh, I think, you know, particularly if you're diagnosed later in life, the diagnosis itself comes as no surprise. But, you know, when you, you first get the inkling and you start looking into it, it, it certainly is a surprise, um, you know, particularly because Back then, uh, I wasn't aware that women <laughs> could have autism. It's right. sort of not part of the popular conversation. Certainly, you know, it, it's sort of relegated uh, to to young boys, um, t- to which I was neither uh, in 2016 and remain so. Uh, so it was sort of an eye-opening thing and, and to start to understand that you think differently and indeed even thinking about how you think was kind of a, a disruptive process. You know, we're not really taught to understand that, you know, the way we process the world is deeply individual. Yeah. I've got to say, I was a, a diligent young lesbian growing up in Melbourne, so I've seen a lot of your work over the years and <laughs> I, I feel like I've learned a lot about you over the years and, um, like, a lot of people I was completely blown away by Nanette. It's been such a, a game changer in the comedy world and has earned you an Emmy, a Peabody Award on top of all the major comedy awards. Because of the success of Nanette, do you feel pressure to deliver more shows along those lines now or has success given you more freedom? Um, I certainly feel the pressure, but I'm doing my best to, to avoid walking into that uh, corner and painting myself in, you're essentially, you know, a good personification of uh, the audience that I was talking to when I wrote <laughs> Nanette, you know, people who are, were aware of my past work. 
that the show itself then was, you know, shown to such a bigger audience and worldwide audience who didn't understand that part of me. Yep. Um, I have to keep reminding myself that, you know, the work I do on stage is is pretty much, you know, I'm just learning on the go and then I almost do a, a report and go, this is what I'm learning at the moment. And that's what <laughs> Nanette certainly was. So that's the spirit in which I approach new work is just try and, keep living my life as best I can and then and then reporting on the lessons learnt or unlearnt. Nice one. How has your ADHD and autism diagnosis impacted the way you write and perform? Like is being that aware of yourself good for creativity? Well, I think it's the more, what's changed for me is that it's uh, given me a as a more solid ground to stand on. I think before of my diagnosis, I, I was just sort of trying to make sense of myself in front of an audience. And now I can just sit back and relax and sort of think, well, I'm atypical. So that's where I begin. So it's it's freed me up in a lot of ways. I'm not trying to f- twist myself to, to, to feel normal. I am just kind of standing straight up and go, well, we can begin at not normal and move off from there. You know, so it, it's been liberating in a sense, but it's also come hand in hand in considerable success, which is also comes with the perks of being able to choose where and when you perform. And, you know, I have a I have a lovely audience now that I can travel around the world visiting. So it's hmm. sort of a, a quite, my world is so much different than it was five years ago. Like I cannot explain how different it is. Yeah, right. Look, I'm I'm really fascinated as a, a queer person with the intersection of queerness and autism spectrum disorder. I, I lead ABC Queer at the ABC, which um, delivers a lot of content to young LGBTQIA plus people. And I've been reading about this and I, I was blown away. One, one study said that autistic individuals are more than seven times more likely to be trans or gender non-conforming than their neurotypical peers. In addition, up to 70% of the autistic community have been found to identify as non-heterosexual. And it's like, wow, this is pretty mind-blowing. As a neurodivergent queer person, do you ever wonder why this is the case? I'll begin with a little caveat at the top. Is like well, There's so much about the human brain we don't understand, so, you know, it is all guesswork. But having said that, I feel like the, the correlation, particularly between, you know, gender and neurodiversity, I think it, it falls into this world where the neurotypical atypical mind, you know, because it's a manual process. I think we expose through that, that's the way that we think, the construct that gender is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's biology and then there's a con- construct to which we all have to dance around. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, missing logic that, that goes in because of, you know, it, we have made it all up. There's, you know, there's no two <laughs> ways about it. And I think the autistic mind is just not into that. You know, it doesn't make <laughs> sense. I feel like the, you've got a big bullshit filter. 
Yeah, essentially. Well, we try to do the right thing and then, you know, we, we turn it around in our minds over and over again. I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't truck. And, uh, you know, also I think often we live inside of our bodies uh, and we're not necessarily thinking about how we are perceived first. Like I think it's, we, you know, this of course broad generalizations and, and everyone on the spectrum has a different experience. But from what I understand, I, you know, we're talking to a lot of people from my community. It's like we we we, we think about uh, ourselves inside our own body before how other people perceive us, um, and often that leads to bullying at school. But as you get older, I think it becomes slightly more freeing as you understand yourself and and you know the contortions you don't want to you know fold yourself into anymore. How free do you feel? these days. Like English writer Jeanette Winderson called her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal? And and that's a title that you've referenced before in your work. Like from your experience, what are the perks of being able to live authentically? It's just so uh, a lot less energy. (laughs) You just... (laughs) You just sort of like whether you just know that a certain section of the community is not going to enjoy your very existence and there's not much to be done about that. You just have to work on on those that have uh, have an open mind and, and ca- have a caring heart at first. But this also comes with enormous, this attitude I, I'm able to have because I, I've got the privilege of both age and success and a little bit of financial security. I don't think that the comfort that I'm feeling is necessarily available to a lot of people on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who go undiagnosed and certainly the queer autistic community, I think, is is really underserved and, you know, I think it's a moment, a real moment of activism. Mm. I um, was at an event recently. It was a pop-up shop for gender expression gear and it's a trend-owned local business and as part of their pop-up shop they had sensory friendly hours, the first hour and the last hour of the day. And when I was there, um, people from Autism Spectrum Australia were doing an assessment of the space and they were, you know, turning off fluoro lights and turning down the music and stuff like that. And I just thought, oh, this is so cool and, and, you know, it's such an inclusive space. I think everyone would be happier if if spaces were <laughs> sensory, more sort of nuanced instead of I think we, we move through a world where the world, every space we move into is just demanding every inch of our attention and like competing sounds with lights and, we, you know, we're not, we don't think about the aesthetic of things in terms of our own safety. We, we, we tend to think of that as icing on the cake as opposed to just being a nurturing environment as important to our mental health. I, I honestly think that if if people on the spectrum designed our physical spaces, there'd be a lot less rage. <laughs> I think you're right. My experience of the queer community is that we most of the time are pretty em- empathetic of people from diverse backgrounds or from other marginalised communities. I'm curious about your experience of that being part of of sort of multiple, I guess you could say, marginalised communities. Yeah, look, I think it's just a practice, you know. I think if there's a part of your existence that you'd never have to think about, 
uh, there's a fair chance that you should think about it. So if you've never thought about the way that you think, uh, if you've never had to think about the way that you have to move through space, i.e. that you're able-bodied, um, if you've never had to think about the colour of your skin, if you've never had to think about your gender, if you've never had to thought about your sexuality, if you've never had to thought, think about any of these things, you're an extremely privileged individual because the world entirely caters toward your comfort. Mm. You know, yes, I'm a member of, of quite quite some marginalised groups, but uh, I'm also a member of one of the most privileged group, and that is being white. Mm. Uh, so, you know, every, you know, the intersections of where we live should be, you know, a cause for interesting introspection and action as opposed to the alarming moral panic that we seem to be devolving into. So I, because I've experienced, you know, the, the, the success I've just had and uh, I can work and I, I feel like free to express my, my worldview and point of view in, in, on quite a large platform, I have to balance that with being member of of marginalised uh, communities, because you know I I have this very clear privilege, and so on one sense I can't talk for those that are you know more burdened mm. by this, but also you know I ha- I I do feel like a and it's almost a responsibility that to sort of just keep keep my voice out there. You know, I think the more voices, the merrier. And I think we're really experiencing that, particularly with queer representation. Uh, I think we're seeing a real moment for, you know, a diverse range of autistic voices, which is is heartening. There's still so much support that, uh, you know, the community needs, particularly the parents of autistic kids. I don't think they're getting near enough support. Hmm. There's a lot of ignorance, particularly in education. So there's a lot of work to be done. But, um, you know, I feel like I'm almost uh, telling jokes and, and, you know, having this point of view on a, on a, a such a large platform is not the hardest job in the world in, in this area. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, in April last year, you shared a very cute post on social media introducing the world to your wife, Jenny Shamash. You grew up in Tassie when homosexuality was illegal until 1997. How did it feel for you to exercise your right to marry? You know, it was a surprising thing because I always had quite a, you know, an ambivalent attitude toward my own ability to marry because I didn't feel like I had the ability to relate that well enough to to make it legal. Um, <laughs> I sort of, you know, you know, as a history nerd, I understand that, uh, that marriage is a deeply problematic institution. I think that legalising same-sex marriage actually steered marriage closer toward the romantic ideals that it it thinks it is but essentially it's deeply mired in patriarchal and financial financially problematic ideas so you know I had this ambivalence toward it but one of the things that really really surprised me was how nice it felt (laughs) it just felt really nice people were really happy for us it made me angrier about the people who thought that we shouldn't have access to it, you know, because it is sort of like, why can't we be part of the community? Why, why shouldn't we experience a little moment of people just going, well done, well done on this rite of passage? <laughs> people were so nice about it. It was a little shocked that people have emotions, but that, that is a running theme in my life. Right, okay. <laughs> See, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a long-term relationship and my partner is actually pregnant, news. 
<laughs> so right. I've got family members saying, you know, you're going to make an honest woman out of her money. And I'm like, oh, what? What are you talking about? So I, I kind of feel like there's sort of external pressure to get married now. So oh. <laughs> That's a real turn of events, isn't it? It really is. Well, you know, in your post, you said, for for the record, this is me gushing. I am full of very positive feelings. So life is good for you. Maybe I should, you know, just get married. <laughs> I think it's fine. You know, I think <laughs> just the ability to be able to choose and is is where it's at. You know, I think, you know, there was also a partner visa, there's a lot of forms involved in partner visas and, you know, getting married just really is a administrative privilege. <laughs> I, I the romance. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, will you partake in this administrative privilege with me? I do. Yeah. <laughs> you dedicate 10 Steps to Nanette to your mum and dad. How has your relationship with your folks changed now that so much of your life is out in the open? Well, you know, from the moment I started doing comedy, I was I was mining my personal life and particularly growing up. So they've grown up with me, the smaller stakes in front of 10 people at the Adelaide Fringe <laughs> to sort of Sydney Opera House beaming around the globe. So I think it's a constant conversation we're having. Um, we're certainly a lot closer. I feel like, you know, they've had to process some stuff, um, as have I. Mm. But, you know, it's a very interesting way. You know, ultimately we're a deeply private family. None of us are really, apart from my work, none of us are really excessive on social media. Mm. In fact, Dad joined up to Facebook and he was horrified that people he didn't know wanted to be his friends. <laughs> so, um, so you know, like it's it's a real balance and I pay a lot more attention to what I put out there now in terms of my family because, you know, it is going out to such a large audience. So, in, yeah, I think we're going well. Good, good. Just on the topic of kids, though, would you like to have your own kids one day? No, I don't think so. I like them. I like them as a concept, but I have a sensory profile that would make having children really, really difficult. You know, a lot of what makes life difficult for me is is that complicated sensory profile that I seem to exist with. I believe there's this valuable space in the world to be had for people who don't have children. I have lots of people in my life who have children and I think kids like adults in their life who don't have their own children so they can feel even more special. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but every day is a new day. Totally, totally. I've definitely never felt the TikTok, TikTok that <laughs> people, you know, with the uterus describe. Yeah, I've yeah. never once felt that, like, need to see a mini-me, just never. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I must admit, my maternal instinct is probably more towards dogs, but, like, it, it's kind of never been just this, like, I've got to have kids, but it's always, it's like, actually, that, that could be a nice idea, and then it worked out. So well, it's like, all right, this is the, the journey we're going on. Well, I feel like, you you know, you're in a partnership, there's a conversation to be had that, you know, it's not just one person's decision and particularly in a queer relationship, it is a really active situation. It sure is. really active conversation. <laughs> it's definitely no accident. <laughs> yeah. 
Thinking back to your own childhood feeling stuck in Smith and in Tassie, knowing what you know now, what words of wisdom would you have for young Hannah? Just hang on tight, mate. Like, (laughs) it's really difficult to understand the the future. I, I always feel like if I went back in time, I'd scare the absolute shit out of myself. So, <laughs> you know, me as a kid, I'm, I, I was not ready to know what I know now. But I just feel bad for young people now. Like that's I'm not really worried about me as a young person because mm-hmm. it was a different time and a place and that's over now. Like, you know, we've run our race. Yeah. But and it's really difficult for people my age to give advice to younger people now because it's such a different world. So I, I feel like I've become a grandma before my time. I'm just saying things like, you'll be right, good on you. Oh no, this is wow. Like, you know, excuse me while I re, you know, recede into irrelevance. <laughs> <laughs> do do you mentor anyone in in your life, any young people? Uh, not actively. I just don't know that I'm, like, I'm, I don't know what I've got to share. I feel like my, my career path has been so idiosyncratic. My life path has been so idiosyncratic and I'm just not, I haven't followed an ambitious path. It looks like I have, but ambition hasn't driven me. So I feel like the type of people who need mentors don't need a mentor like me because I'll be just like, nah, just, you know, whatever. Just think about your favourite thing because that's all all I've ever done is like, well, I'm going to think about wombats now. That's not a mentor attitude. I mean, I certainly admire you and your work and you're someone that I've looked at over the years and and I don't think I've ever had a, you know, a set career path that's kind of been like, oh, this is shiny, let's sort of go in this direction. But just seeing you be who you are so boldly is pretty inspirational, I suppose, whether or not you you intend to, to be that sort of person or not. Yeah, look, I think there's a place for what I do, but I also think there is a particular type of person who makes a great mentor. Um, and I think you know, that is an important relationship, especially for people, you know, starting out in any industry. And I certainly had, you know, I don't think I had ever had designated mentors, but I certainly felt well supported by like Denise Scott and Judith Lucy, to name a couple. But it wasn't, you know, I think in in this industry, it's a little different to say corporate mentoring (laughs) because Mm. the industry and is, is, is ever evolving and, you know, you've just got to take opportunities. But certainly, you know, I hope that I can be half as kind as those two. Hmm. Look, it's no secret that comedy for a long time has had a a diversity issue and we're gradually seeing that shifting. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where diversity is unremarkable? Well, I don't think comedy is going to get there without the rest of the world getting there and I don't see that happening in my lifetime you know, so if something, you don't see something happening in your lifetime, then that's just an ideal. And I don't think that's a helpful viewpoint to operate in. You know, you, you've got to be a realist. So I feel like it's just something we have to actively strive for without hope of ever seeing it. And that's kind of a sad place, but it's also an empowering place because you can just put your head down and get on with it and, and not get sort of caught up in the setbacks. 
thank you so much, Hannah Gasby, for giving us a real insight into what it's like to be you and, and thank you for, you know, sharing some ad- advice, intentional or not, for young queer <laughs> and diverse people out there. That was Hannah Gadsby with Mon Shafter from ABC Queer. They spoke to each other for ABC RN's big weekend of books. There are so many more interviews you can listen to uh, from this big weekend of books. Uh, people like Sarah Winman, Colin McCann, Hetty McKinnon. The list just goes on and on. You can find them all on the ABC Listen app. Just look for the big weekend of books. While you're there, make sure you're following the book show too. I'm Claire Nichols, and this show is made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Noongar people. And I'll be back with a regular episode next time. Talk then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.